I want you to find the book of James in your Bible. We're going to be in James chapter 4. You know, sometimes as a pastor or as, um, well, definitely as a pastor, I, one, of the, one of the biggest changes going from being a youth minister to a pastor is preparing sermons weekly, preparing things every single week. When you're the youth guy, you just get to fill in every once in a while so you have weeks and months and months to work on sermons. And uh, it's a different pace as a pastor when you're preparing sermons week after week. And, um, and I have people ask me sometimes, how do you know what to preach? How, do, how does God tell you what to preach? And my honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I, I can't explain to you how he does that any more than I can explain to you how he does anything. But I can tell you what, what happens as far as it goes with me. I pray and regularly ask God to just show me what part of his word he wants shared. I just ask him to direct me and highlight and, and lead me to specific text in scripture to lead me to specific places in his word that he wants me to, to share. And as I pray that, usually in that prayer, I will find something that, that is highlighted in my mind somehow, that God will, will draw my attention to. And, and you say, well, how does he do that? He does that in lots of ways. God does it through circumstances sometimes. He does it through people, interactions with them. He does it just in the quiet privateness of, of reading his word just alone with him. Like he, he, will, he will highlight things. And, and to be honest with you, in, in some cases, sometimes I get nervous because I may, be, I may get very close to a Sunday and feel like he's not highlighted anything for me yet. You know what I'm saying? And those of you who have preached before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but many times I consider many things and there may be lots of different directions and lots of things. Maybe there's four or five places that I've, that I've thought about. And, but usually one thing will rise to the top. Usually one thing will rise to the forefront of my mind and my heart in the way that I'm, in, and I'm thinking. And it just, it, it usually looks, it's usually it's a text that stays on my mind and I can't get it off. And so because I trust the Lord, because I trust the Holy Spirit, and because I trust that he knows me well enough to know he has to make it very obvious to me because I'm not really smart to figure that out on my own. Uh, that whatever it is that's in my mind that I'm thinking about a lot is probably what he wants me to address. And so um, there's no burning bush, usually. There's no audible voice of God that says, this is what you should preach, you know. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. And so uh, this is a passage that's been on my mind all week. So let's read it together. James chapter 4, there's four verses we want to look at in, um, beginning in verse 13. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city 
and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I love the book of James. And I love the book of James because it's super practical and it's, and it's very plain. There, most of the time when you read the book of James, and there's not a whole lot that you ever read that you go, hmm, I wonder what he means by that. James is so clear and he's so, um, the whole book of James is about genuine faith and what are the practical implications of genuine faith in the life of a believer? It's really, it's really sort of similar to the Beatitudes when I began to think about how the book of James is. Like what Jesus has just done for us in the, in the Beatitudes is talk about here are principles of the kingdom and this is what it looks like for those principles to come out of people's lives. But with the Beatitudes, they're a little more abstract, Right? They're these, they're these huge principle statements that Jesus makes that we can apply to all kinds of different things. James is different. James is doing the same thing. He's saying, here is what a life lived out in faith looks like. But James doesn't, he's not abstract. <laughs> James is very specific. He's very uh, practical. And so um, all throughout the book of James is filled with instructions like this, but chapter four specifically, um, because these verses are, are near the end of chapter four, um, for us to really get what they mean, we need to know, well, what, what is all of chapter four about? Not just these verses. Chapter four is a warning from James against arrogance and pride. Okay, if you, if you could sum up all of chapter four and you read it, it's James warning us against bringing prideful people, arrogant people when it comes to the way we relate to God. And verse 6, if you go back up to verse 6 in chapter 4, that kind of sums up chapter 4 when he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's saying there's a cost for arrogance. There's a, there's a cost for for pride, and when you approach God with arrogance and pride, there are consequences of that. So, as we think about the practical instruction that James has given us here in these verses, we have to know that it's regarding this issue of pride and arrogance. That's the whole theme of chapter four. So, as we read these verses, we have to first of all understand that's that's the the theme of what James is talking about in chapter four is warning us against that. So. When we look at verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. So in this conversation that James is having in chapter 4 about pride and arrogance and warning us against that, he points out people in verse 13 who have plans. James is talking, you say, who is he talking to? He's talking to people who have plans. Do you have plans? Mm -hmm, I have plans. You've got plans after church. 
you guys, not so much as the 11 o'clock service, but you have plans, and those plans are based on how long I preach. Um, <laughs> the success or the failure of those plans. Um, you have plans after church. You have things that you're going to be doing next week. You're, some of you are making plans for next summer, what you're going to do for your vacations. Uh, you're making plans for your retirement. Some of us are just maybe a year or two away from retirement. Some of us may be more than a few years away from our retirement. But we're already in the mode of making plans because that's kind of what we do. Um, but James, you notice he, he starts out, verse 13, with this phrase, come now. That word has a, um, that word in, in the original language is a phrase that's meant to, to call attention. It almost has the tone of the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament who says, hey, listen up or uh, pay attention. And so he's, he's calling to a specific group of people who make plans. So because he's addressing this issue of pride in chapter 4, He's talking to people who make plans in pride, who make plans in arrogance. And, and there's one big overarching message in these verses, and I'm going to give it to you, and this is for your notes. Do not disregard God in the plans you're making. Do not disregard God in the plans you're making. This is what James is saying in this part of chapter 4 specifically in in the context of culture and time James is talking to a specific group of class of people he's talking to the merchant class because he's talking about making plans and traveling and making money okay um Everybody in that culture didn't do that. that. That wasn't something that applied to everybody. Some people never left where they grew up. They, they stayed and they, and, they, and they worked with their family. But there was a merchant class of people who were, who were the business class almost. They would be the people today who you see at the airport all the time. The ones who, who have lots of frequent flyer miles. The ones who are always coming and going because of their business. And they go to this city and they do a deal. And then they pack up and go to another city and do a deal. And it's all part of their, um, part of their business and money making. This is sort of who he's talking to in this context. And you say, well, that's not really me. I'm not one of those business people. But you make plans. You make lots of plans. Um, and, and everybody in our culture, in, in 21st century American culture, we are a planning people. I mean, we have education plans. We make financial plans. We make retirement plans. We make business plans. We make vacation plans. Like, and there are books and books and books to help you make a plan. If you don't have a plan, you need to get a plan. And, and this is kind of what we hear in, in our culture. But James is talking to the ones who are making their plans and they're not regarding God in their plans. They're not including God in the plans that they're making and they're not even really considering him and his role in their life as they're making plans. I want you to look at verse 13 with me. And see how James gives this example and it represents the prideful plans of people. 
Um, look, at, look at the first phrase. He said, this is what you say. Today or tomorrow, number one, that is they choose their own time. They decide when they will do what they will do. Today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city. Number two, they choose their, their place. They choose when they will do what they're doing and they choose where they will do what they're doing. Number three, he says, we'll go to such and such a city, number three, and spend a year there. They choose their own duration. They, they decide how long they're going to do whatever it is they're going to do. And he says, for a year, we will do business. So then they choose their own pursuit. And then at the end, they choose what their own goal of that pursuit is going to be, and that's to make a profit. Do you, do you see that? In that phrase, we see people who plan with their own time. They choose their own time. They choose their own place. They choose their own duration. They choose their own pursuit. And they choose their own goal. And James says, hey, listen up, you guys who are making all of these plans for when and where and how long and what and, and what the goal will be. You're making all these plans and you're forgetting there's a sovereign God. You're not even thinking about that. He's talking to people who decide all of these things for themselves and ignore the fact that God has first claim over our lives. The reason we make plans and the reason we say things sometimes arrogantly, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to plan this and this is where I'm going to go is because we think we have, we have claim over our lives. But scripture tells us we don't. We don't have first claim over our lives. God does. And, and there's two, two ways that he has claims over our life. First, as our creator. He is the one who made us. So he has first claim over us. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Because he is the creator, he has first claim over you and I. Not ourselves. So as the creator, he has claim over everybody, whether, whether you have faith or not, whether you believe in him or not, you don't lay first claim to your own life because you did not create yourself. You, you were made by a creator who has first claim. But also for us as believers, he claims us as our master. Um, back a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. He says, you, God has claim over your life, not just as your creator, but as your master because a price was paid for your life. If you are in him, if you are a believer, he owns you. You belong to him. He is our master. We can't think that we have first claim over our lives. And, it, and, and it's very easy to do that. I can remember uh, a time in my life as a younger man when I'm, I made plans. In high school, I, 
I felt my first call to, to ministry. And then um, as I started college, I began to figure out what that was going to be and what that was going to look like. And I did all of that in James 13. I did all of that. I remember as a college kid, I was making plans. I was going to choose my own time. I knew when I was going to do what I was going to do. I was going to go to such and such a city. Originally, it was Nashville, Tennessee I was going to. Um, I was going to go to Belmont University. I was going to spend two years. James says, you pick your own. We go there for a year or two years. I was going to spend at least two years in Nashville. I was going to go to Belmont University. I was going to be a music business major, and I was going to get a job with a, with a Christian music distribution company. How exciting does that sound? Um, and I was going to do business there. I was going to get a job and go to school. And then the goal or the objective ultimately was to be a part of the Christian music industry. And I'll say that I, I, I loved the Christian music industry more then than I do now. Uh, but um, the ironic thing was I was feeling called to ministry as a young man. And I was making all kinds of plans I was doing exactly what James is talking about there. And what was ironic about it is I was making plans for God without considering God. Everything I wanted to do was good. Good plans. My whole motive for wanting to be a part of, of the music industry, as silly as it sounds to me now, was as a teenager, it was such a big part of my life growing up as a believer, I wanted to be a part of that. And I thought if I'm working with in the business aspects of, of Christian music, then I would be a part of other young people like me getting to hear it and being, uh, being encouraged by it and being taught by it. And, and uh, that was going to be part of my ministry. Like I was going to be a part of a bigger ministry, but I was just going to be a little bitty, little bitty gear, a little bitty cog in the whole machine. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. But then I realized... And God made me realize through lots of circumstances that, Eric, you're making all these plans, but I'm in none of them. And you're making them for me. But these aren't my plans. I'm not in any of these plans. And so when I realized that and I surrendered those plans to him, it changed everything. Changed the course of everything. And, it, and, and that's why I'm here right now. I'm, I'm, I realized that this morning. As I'm sitting here and I'm standing here with you guys, had, had God not shown me how foolish I was being because I was making plans without regards for his work and what he wanted, more than what I wanted, what I thought was great, then I, I don't know where I would be this morning. I have no idea. James is warning us from practicing what we could call practical atheism. Practical atheism. Um, when we plan and make decisions as if God doesn't exist. You say, oh, well, I would never do that. I believe in God. Yeah, but do you plan your life as someone who believes that God is real? Do you wake up in the morning and plan out what your day will be like based on the reality of God's presence in your life? 
Do you make plans knowing that he is sovereign over everything and what you anticipate happening may not be what really happens? And whatever really happens isn't an accident or it's not chaos. It's, it's, it's a sovereign God who's in control of everything, orchestrating and moving everything for his will and for his glory. Don't get me wrong. James is not saying don't make plans. Okay? (laughs) That's not what he's saying because plans are good. We need plans. People like me need plans (laughs) because we are hot messes without plans. Sometimes we're hot messes with plans because we just can't, can't see. We come up with a plan and it's good, but even sticking to the plan. It's difficult. We, we need to do that. There are good things that come from making plans. But when we make plans as if God is not a factor. That is what James is warning us about. We can't pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then live as if there's no kingdom. And make our plans based on what we want. That's a contradiction. So James says in this verse, listen up, all of you who are planning your whole lives without regarding God. And then in verse 14, he says there's a couple of reasons. He says it's foolish for you to do that. Foolish for you to plan your life out without regard for God. In verse 14, he says here's why it's foolish. There's a couple of reasons. Number one, read verse 14. Yet you do not know that what tomorrow will bring. What your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Number one is foolish because the future is uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. James says, it's silly to make plans without God because you have no idea what's going to happen. To you, you have no idea what's going to happen to the people who are a part of the plans that you're making. He says, don't make plans like you're in control of things. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that. We can make plans and we're going to do this. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're in control. Folks, the the older I get and the more I live life, and some of you have figured this out long before me. But I'm getting to the point where I get the fact that I'm not in control of anything. You feel that? Like, do you, you feel that with me? Like, I'm, as much as I try to organize and grab hold of things and, and put things, like, I'm not in control of anything, even the, the course of my day when I wake up in the morning. I promise y'all, Thursday was not the way I planned it. I had plans. I had things I was going to do. I had things I was going to accomplish. And they were good things. But not a one of them got done. Because life is not simple. How many of you would just raise your hands and say, this week I made plans and things that I couldn't control made all those plans go away? You're thinking of something specific. That's what James is saying. He says, don't plan things like you think you're in control. Because you're not. A heart surrendered to Christ lives through those changes with a comfort of knowing that God is sovereign over every detail of my life and, and, 
and pieces each one of those details together in a perfect plan. A follower of Christ doesn't, doesn't have to freak out when their plans change. Because you know that when the pieces move in a way that you didn't plan for them to move, that somebody else is moving them. That it's God. And you know that's him and you, re- you honor his sovereignty and you recognize who he is and how in control he is. And so when things start moving around and you go, whoa, hold on a second, I didn't see this coming. You don't have to be afraid because you know the heart of the one who's moving the pieces around. So he says you, you shouldn't make plans without God. The arrogant, the prideful do that. One, because you don't know life is uncertain. Number two, because life is short. And he compares life to, he uses that word vapor that we translate vapor. That, that's literally like the fog that you see cast over the mountains. Kim and I were driving a few weekends ago up into like the Blue Ridge area. And it was kind of early in the morning. And as we were driving, we just kind of came over the hill. And all of a sudden we saw this huge like fog that just it was almost like a cloud out of the sky just came down and just sat down over the mountain and it, it was beautiful it, it, it's like that morning fog that settles over the over the the land it's the the steam from that hot cup of coffee that you get first thing in the morning that you have to have you can and I love to is anybody weird like me when I get a hot cup of coffee before I drink it, I don't want to drink it too hot because I'll burn my tongue and then I can't taste anything all the rest of the day and so I don't do that. I'll take my hot cup of coffee and just sit it in front of me and watch it. Do you do that? And try to look. I watch the steam come up off of it. It's, it's just fun. But how long does that last? Because as soon as your coffee cools just a little bit, that goes away. It's, it's your breath in just a few weeks. It's going to get cold enough that when you walk outside, just the breath coming out of your mouth and your nose, you're going to see it right in front of your face. But how long does that stick around? I mean, it comes and goes. It appears and it disappears in seconds. So brief. And that's what James is saying. He says, you're making all these plans for your life. And the reality is you have no idea how long it's going to last. Psalm 102, verses 11 and 12 says, My days are like a lengthening shadow, and I wither away like grass. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your fame endures to all generations. This is the heart of someone who understands the the fragile nature of their life compared to the eternal glory of God. Life is short. James is saying, don't ignore the will of God in this short life because if you ignore the will of God in this short, brief life that you have, it has everything to do with the way your eternal life is going to be. It says, you're worried about the steam coming off the coffee. You're worried about the part of your life that's just here for just a little while and then it goes away. Most of the things that we plan, all of the things in those verses before when he says traveling to cities, making money, uh, making plans, building your portfolio, all of those things. That's all of that stuff's like the cup of coffee. (laughs) 
Like the steam rising, it's going to go away. And in the end, what's left is going to be none of that. He says, you're putting all your plans in the temporary and disregarding the eternal. You know, when someone dies tragically or, or even someone who dies of natural causes and, 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 and if they're not way up in age, you'll hear people say sometimes, oh, their life was cut short, right? And we, and we say that, oh, like, like we don't think it was time for them to go. But when I read what James is saying and how he's describing life here, I think James would reply to that and say, life's already short. It's not, it's not so much. I think we talk about people's lives being cut short because we have this idea that life is supposed to be long. And what James is telling us in the perspective of God, the perspective of all that is, life is not long. And our life here was never even really meant to be long compared to the eternal life that God has prepared for us. So the more we realize the, the, the brevity, the, the fact that life is short, it creates more urgency for us to tell people about the hope of the gospel. That's part of the reason, I think, that many people put off responding to the gospel and even that many Christians put off sharing the gospel with people because we think life is long. There's plenty of time. There's not plenty of time. James says you have no idea. You have no control. And you have no idea how long it's going to last. So he gives us the alternative in verses 15 and 16. Or in verse 15 specifically. He says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, he says, now, this is what, verse 15 is what you should be doing. But unfortunately, verse 16 is what you're actually doing. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. You say, whoa, Eric, that sounds, that sounds intense. Like I get that it's not smart to make plans like that. It's not, but, but evil, is it really evil to do that? That word, boast in verse 16, in the Greek, it, it, it can mean to be loud-mouthed or to speak loudly. You know anybody like that? To boast, to be loud mouth. Um, this it, it, it's to to glory in something now to or or to to be loud about something, and that can be legitimate or illegitimate, right? There are some things we should boast in, we should be loud about when it comes to the glory of God, right? Sometimes the problem is we're not loud enough. We don't boast enough in the Lord and who He is and how glorious He is. But we can take that same glory and boasting that is meant to be with the Lord and we can put it into illegitimate things. And most of the time in this case, James is talking about bragging in your own accomplishments. He says you boast in your arrogance because you think you're in control of, of your life and your circumstances and your destiny when you really are not. 
that phrase literally is, it literally means what James is saying is you're bragging about something that you don't even have. I mean, that would be as silly as me taking you out in the parking lot and bragging about my brand new truck that I don't have. (laughs) You would think I was nuts if I did that. That's what James is saying. Like that's how crazy your boasting is. You are literally bragging like you have something that you don't have. It's not even there. But rather, he says, to submit to the Lord's will in all of our efforts and plans and to affirm his power and authority over all things, over and over. When he says, instead, you should say, that in that language, it, it's... it's um, it's an infinitive, is like in English. And what that means, can y'all tell I'm taking a Greek class? It, it's an infinitive, which means it's, it's, it's um, perpetual. It's something that you do over and over and over and over. It's not just one thing. And it's more than just saying it. James isn't just talking about saying it. We were even talking this week, and Kim was saying her great-grandmother uh, used to always say, well, Lord willing, how many of y'all, how many of y'all either say that or you had grandparents, like when you're making plans, I say, well, we'll, we'll do this Lord willing, Lord willing. And, and you should, you should value that. And they, they, they should be commended for that because at least they're verbally acknowledge what James is saying here. The reason they say that is because somebody taught them to say that. And somebody taught them to say that because they read James 4, 15. And it says, hey, you should say this. This is literally what James says. You should say, well, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this and we'll do that. But James is not just talking about saying it. If we can say Lord willing every day of our life and still live our lives as if we're in control of them. He's not talking about just words. Instead, you should say, not with your mouth, but with your life. With your planning. That God has ultimate authority and control over all things. And you know what happens when we can submit ourselves to God in that way? The plans that we make become an act of worship. Because we're making plans with regard for his glory. And submitting my plans. It's a, it's, like I said, James isn't saying don't make plans. But it, it becomes an act of worship when as I am planning out things and deciding what is the best thing to do. If I'm regarding God, the first thing I'm going to do is bring my plans to him. And then are my plans for what I want my life to be become a sacrifice that I bring to him. Willing to put before his authority and to say you can do with these whatever you want to do. You can change this however you want to change it. And then I begin to live my life with my eyes on his glory rather than on my plans and what I think I'm going to do. So make your plans. Make them. But be willing to surrender every single one of them to Jesus. That's what James is saying. Don't, Don't make your own plans and think they're yours. So this morning, I just want you to consider what plans are you making? Maybe through this time, you've thought about that. These are are plans that I'm making for the future. Have you considered God? 
Have you considered how unpredictable life is? Have you considered how short life is? Have you considered the lack of control you really have in all of these circumstances? And have you taken your plans and your dreams and what you want to do and brought them before the Lord? When there's a decision to be made in your life, do you bring it to him? Do you pray? Do you say, God, I've got an idea of, of what I could do here. I even have an idea of what I think might be best or what is going to turn out being good for me. But I want to know, I want to know what you think. I need you to help me because I'm not in control of anything. Because when you do that, there's a, there's a promise that when you, when you do that, when you submit yourself to the Lord and you submit your plans to him and you live your life that way, it's not that you don't make plans, but you make plans with the, with the reality of who he is at the forefront of them, then your plans glorify God. And guess what? When you live a life like that, and tragedy or death or something unplanned changes your plans, God gets glory. You can tell the people who live their life this way from the people who don't. And it's very easy to see when somebody dies, when their time is up, when the vapor of their life fades away. There's glory for God. There's glory directed to him because they did everything in their life with that reality in mind. The ones who are arrogant and prideful who don't, there's nothing left. <laughs>